It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Truth and Justice. This week, we're continuing our series breakdown and sharing behind-the-scenes stories from our recently released TV series, The Forgotten West Memphis 3. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about Part 2, Memories. In Part 2, I'm joined by two experts. Jim Clementi returns as we continue to develop a profile of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher's killer, and MVAC DNA expert Susanna Ryan. It's also in part two where we hear from a few new witnesses, Bobby Posey, Carlos Seals, and a man that claims to have been playing with the boys on the afternoon that they were killed, George Taylor. And lastly, in this episode, I begin my mission of getting permission from the three convicted to use new technology to test the evidence. There's a lot going on in this part, and I'm going to break it down scene by scene right after a short break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part two begins with me traveling to Pure Gold Forensics in California to meet with specialist Susanna Ryan. Now on the show, we see a very short interaction between myself and Susanna. You see me handling a rock, and she uses the MVAC machine to pull my DNA from it. I actually spent nearly two hours with Ms. Ryan that day and got a really good lesson on how the machine works. So in the show, you heard her say that my DNA was collected on a disc. Basically, the disc takes the place of a traditional swab that's usually used to collect touch DNA. Prior to MVAC, if you wanted to try to pull DNA off of that rock, or let's say a t-shirt for this example, you would take a Q-tip looking swab, soak it in a sterile solution, and wipe it on the surface. As you can imagine, that little swab can only cover so much of the shirt, typically a pretty small area and it's only going to pull cells off of the surface of the shirt. Any skin cells or blood or body fluids that have soaked into the fibers would not be collected. One big downfall of this method is that you're very limited on the amount of space on the shirt that you can test. Every swab has to be tested separately, which is expensive. 
So you sort of have to guess where you might find the DNA that you're looking for. But with MVAC, the sky's the limit. On the show, as I said, you saw a very brief explanation of how the machine works. I'll explain it here in a little more detail. That wand that you saw Susanna using on the rock first sprays a sterile solution under high pressure onto the surface that you're testing. In our t-shirt example, you would do this over every single inch of the shirt. The whole thing. What this does is it breaks loose any and all DNA present, even from in between the fibers. Then, the same wand sucks all of that sterile liquid, which now has millions of cells floating around in it, into a sterile jar. So where before we would just test a tiny piece of cotton with a tiny amount of cells on it, now you have a jar full of DNA-filled liquid. That liquid is then pulled through a filter that looks like a 2-inch cotton disc. That disc acts like the swab, except for it will collect over 200 times more DNA than just swabbing the surface of any item. The disc is then cut into quarters, which is one of the best parts of this method. MVAC collects so much DNA that portions of the disc can be saved for future testing. The pieces of the disc are analyzed for DNA just like the old swabs would have been. The big difference, of course, is that in our original example, only a small portion of the shirt was tested and only on the surface. But with MVAC, every millimeter of the shirt was tested, both on the surface and deep inside the fibers, which is why Susanna Ryan believes that if she can get access to the evidence from our crime scene, the bindings, the clothes, the sticks used to pin the clothing into the mud, and even the bikes. We will find the killer's DNA all over that crime scene. My meeting with Susanna was probably the most exciting part of my investigation. At this point, I was made aware that there is science available that can absolutely solve this case. All we have to do is get the district attorney to agree to test the evidence. So, as soon as I got back from meeting with Susanna, I began calling Scott Ellington. Mr. Ellington is the district attorney who released the West Memphis Three on an Alfred plea in 2011. After the release, he stated publicly on multiple occasions that, quote, it would be a dereliction of my duties not to consider any new evidence in this case, end quote. Now, about 10 minutes into part two, you see my first attempt at calling Ellington. I call his office and I speak with his secretary. Now, at this point, I'm assuming that the process of testing the evidence should be pretty straightforward. I figured Ellington would return my call and let me know what needs to be done in order to get access to the evidence. Or so I thought. But more on that later. After I left the message for Ellington, I began the process of getting a hold of the convicted three. I knew that if the DA doesn't willingly agree to test the evidence, it's going to come down to putting a motion before a judge. And the only people who can file such a motion are Damien, Jason, and Jesse. I first reached out to Jason via Skype. During the Skype conversation, I experienced one of the most telling and powerful moments of this series. I'm hoping that you all caught the same thing that I did. When I spoke with Jason, he was intently listening as I explained to him the process of MVAC testing. 
If you didn't catch it the first go-round, and you still have the show saved on your DVR, watch his reaction when I tell him that MVAC can collect 200 times more DNA from a piece of evidence than swabbing. The biggest smile immediately appears on Jason's face. You could almost feel his excitement through the screen. Now, for all of you naysayers out there, ask yourself this. If Jason Baldwin had anything to do with the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, do you think he would be excited and happy to know that this new method is capable of pulling every possible skin cell off of the crime scene evidence? Now let's compare that to someone else's reaction. I had lunch with a certain someone connected to the case prior to filming the series. I, of course, was already aware, at least with a limited understanding of how MBAC works. When I shared my plan with this person about using MBAC to test the DNA on the crime scene, all of the friendliness was sucked out of the air. And I was told that everyone just needs to leave this case alone. It's already solved. Jason, on the other hand, said, and I quote, Let's do it. Let's make it happen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next up, I begin the process of narrowing down the boy's time of death. I'm using the 140-page police door-to-door notes to trace their steps. Now, for those of you who have listened to Season 5 of the podcast, you've heard me break those notes down over the course of three episodes, so I'm not going to go through all of them again. Check out Season 5 if you want all the nitty-gritty details. But on the TV show, my first order of business is to try to determine if Jamie Clark Ballard's notorious affidavit can be verified. As a quick refresher, in 2007, Jamie came forward and told defense investigators that on the afternoon the boys were killed, she witnessed Terry Hobbs yelling at all three boys as they rode their bikes out from behind her house to, quote, get back here. Jamie's statement was a huge revelation because Terry had said on the record on multiple occasions that he'd never seen Stevie that day. But while Jamie's statement could be a massive revelation in the case, we also have to make sure that it's actually true. Our earlier look at her statement during Season 5 already pointed out some issues. She says the boys were playing behind her house from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. This is contradicted by multiple witness statements that say that the boys were not only elsewhere during that time, but they also weren't together. At 6.30, when Jamie says she actually witnessed Harry yelling at the boys, 
Nearly a dozen other witnesses say that they saw the boys at the same time at the far opposite end of the neighborhood. She also says that all three were on bikes, but Chris didn't have a bike that day. Basically, there are just a lot of problems with her statement. But a large portion of it revolves around Chris's big brother, Ryan Clark. She says in her affidavit that she walked home with Ryan that day and that she was with Ryan at school the next day when he found out that his brother had been killed. The only way to know for sure if there's any credibility to her statement was to talk to Ryan. On the show, I asked Ryan about Jamie's statement, and he was pretty clear on the issue, and I'll quote him directly. Quote, that's bullshit. He said that he didn't walk home with her that day, and he wasn't at school on the day he found out his brother was killed. In fact, he wasn't at school at all for most of the next week. It didn't make the final cut, but Ryan told me that he and Jamie were not very close at all, and he doesn't recall ever actually talking to her about his brother's death. At this point, I find myself in a he-said-she-said situation. Ryan says these things didn't happen, Jamie says they did. But when I compare Jamie's statement to all of the other available evidence, it just doesn't seem possible that it's accurate. Now, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying that Jamie Clark Ballard is intentionally lying. We all know how memories change and fade over the years. We get a little lesson on that from Jim later in the show. But I cannot in good conscience say that I believe her statement is accurate. Now, to be clear, my production team did reach out to Jamie and her mother to request interviews for the show, and they declined. I've also been in touch with her via email over the last couple weeks, and I've invited her onto the podcast to share her side of the story. So far, she hasn't responded to my request. Next, we need to talk about the potential fourth boy, who I described as mystery boy during season five of the podcast. There are a lot of indications in the door-to-door notes that there was a fourth young boy traveling with Stevie, Michael, and Christopher on the day they were murdered. Most notably was Narlene Hollingsworth's statement that she saw a heavyset boy with dark hair wearing green shorts riding on bikes with two of the other boys. She told police that she almost hit one of the boys with her car. Now, during Season 5, I was in a private chat with a group of women that had been studying this case for years. They told me about a guy named George Taylor. George had told them in a Facebook post or in some Facebook group somewhere that he was actually with the boys that afternoon. Then, a little closer look at the notes revealed that the police actually went to George's house to speak with his parents during the door-to-door canvassing. And in those notes, we see that George seems to have started to tell the police something, but then he changed his mind. The lead seemed promising, so we reached out to George Taylor. My interview and interactions with George were, well, strange. He's a sweet guy, and I believe that he means well. But I think his desire to please has left him in a pretty bad position. There was a lot more to the interview than what you saw on the show. George spent the better part of an hour telling me that he was a close friend of Stevie's, but that he was not with him on the day that he was killed. I let him say everything that he wanted to share, and then I confronted him with his statements from Facebook. Once he knew that I knew what he had written, he finally, quote, came clean and admitted that he was, in fact, with the boys that day. He told me that he didn't tell me the truth at first because he was scared. But honestly, after everything was said and done, 
I think that he was telling me the truth the first time. Even going back and reviewing the footage, his behavior when he's denying being with the boys in the first part of the interview is full of indicators of truthfulness. But after he says that he's coming clean and he starts telling me a different story about how he was with the boys that afternoon, red flags are flying all over the place. I think that George didn't want to repeat his story from Facebook because he knew it wasn't true. He was very nervous about it and he tried to tell the truth. But when I confronted him with it, I think he felt trapped. It was easier to say that that's what actually happened and he was just afraid to tell me than to admit that he had made up the story on Facebook. And for those of you who maybe don't think false confessions really happen, I would present to you the rest of my day with George. George, in my opinion, seemed to have caught on what I was fishing for, and so he played along. What he didn't realize is that I didn't want an exciting story. I just wanted the truth. He shared with me detailed descriptions of when Narlene Hollingsworth almost hit him with the car. He was certain that he was wearing green shorts, and he even described the pipe that the boys crossed to get to the bayou. On the surface, George's story fit perfectly with the evidence, but it fit a little too perfectly. When we drove through the neighborhood, he couldn't remember where Stevie lived. In fact, he was nowhere near even the right area of the neighborhood. Now, that is not a big deal. Pam told me that George was Stevie's friend and that he had been to their house several times. So it's not like he never knew where the house was. And it's completely understandable that 26 years later, he couldn't remember details from back when he was eight. But my concern was the contrast of that compared to his vivid memory of things that are well documented in the police reports, like the green shorts and the bike incident. To put that in perspective, this morning I asked my nine-year-old what he was wearing yesterday, and he made a guess, and he was wrong. I finally determined that George was simply sharing details that he had either read or had been discussed with him online when we got to talking about the pipe. During our interview, he described the pipe as green and white plastic. Obviously, the actual pipe bridge was made of rusty steel. But once we got to the crime scene, he wandered 100 feet or so away from the actual pipe that had been fully submerged in the water for weeks due to large amounts of rainfall, and he pointed out the pipe that he remembered there it was, just like he described, a 12-inch green PVC pipe that had faded to white in parts. But the pipe didn't cross the bayou. It ran parallel to it and crossed over a new ditch that had recently been created because of erosion. And that's when I realized that George was very likely making up this entire story. It would appear to me that George had went out to the crime scene to gather some details for his story, and at the time, the actual pipe bridge was underwater and not visible. But he saw a green and white pipe and assumed that was the pipe that the boys had crossed before their murder. There was a lot of discussion about George's interview during post-production. My initial thought was just to scrap the whole thing. The last thing I wanted to do was to make the poor guy look bad on TV. But ultimately, we decided that a large part of the show was intended to separate fact from fiction and to provide a clearer picture of what actually happened. In certain circles, the George Taylor theory has been discussed for years. 
And just like the Jamie Clark Ballard sighting, this is another element of the case that can be scratched off the list of actual evidence. Next, I move on to talking to Bobby Posey. You heard me mention Bobby during Season 5. There's a notation in the door-to-door notes that says Chris told him that his daddy had whipped him and he was running away. The problem with the police notes is that they never followed up with Bobby. There's no mention of the time when this occurred or any other details at all. So I called Bobby to do the follow-up that the West Memphis PD never did. And he confirmed to me that Chris did stop by his house that day and did tell Bobby that his daddy had hurt him and that he was going to run away. Bobby's memory of when this occurred was that it happened around 3.30 p.m. or sometime after school. And he may be exactly right, but the evidence seems to suggest that he's misremembering the time. According to not just Mark Byers, but also Chris's brother Ryan, Mark, Chris's dad, never saw Chris until after he returned home from picking up Chris's mom from work, which was around 5.30. Melissa and Mark both say that this is when Mark spanked Chris. Now, if all of that is true, that would mean that Chris's trip to Bobby's house would have had to have occurred somewhere probably around 6 p.m., not 3.30 p.m. But this confusion about the time is completely understandable, and it's not really a concern. We hear Bobby say that the incident occurred during the daytime, not the nighttime. Well, the sun set at 7.51 p.m. that day, so it would have been daytime at both 3.30 and 6. 26 years later, looking at all of the evidence together, I'm comfortable saying that Chris was alone, not with Michael and Stevie, at 6 p.m. And that's when he went to Bobby Posey's house and said that he's running away. Just 15 minutes before, Dana Moore witnessed him hopping onto the back of Stevie's bike, and 30 minutes before, he was last seen alive, when Carlos Seals saw him and the other two boys riding off towards the Robin Hood woods. On the phone, Bobby told me that I should talk to his friend Carlos Seals. We got cut off before I could ask him why I needed to talk to Carlos, But I knew from the police notes that Bobby and Carlos had some sort of connection that evening. So I took off in search of Carlos. My production team eventually tracked him down, and he was still living in the West Memphis area, and he agreed to meet with me. Carlos and I spoke over the fence in the front yard of his friend's house. He invited me in, but there were too many dogs in the house for us to do a proper setup. Our sound engineer, Mariel, was pretty much losing his mind when he saw all the poochies running around and barking in the front yard. So, we stayed outside. Carlos seemed very credible to me. He had nothing to gain by sharing his story, and accurate or not, it's my opinion that he was sharing his memories of that night to the best of his ability. Unfortunately, the way the interview ended up being edited, it seemed like Carlos was kind of locked into a 5.30 p.m. sighting of the boys. On the show, he said, quote, it had to be at least 5.30 or 6. But our conversation went on for well over an hour after that. Really, Carlos wasn't exactly sure on the time. He said that he figured he saw all three boys around 5.30, but it could have been as late as 6.30. He told me that he just remembers that it was before dinner, because that's what he was going home to do. He was going home to eat. So again, if we go back to verifiable events, 
like the time when Ryan was picked up in court by Mark Byers and Melissa Byers' confirmation that Chris was at home just before 6, and Dana Moore's statement that she actually saw the boys come together and Chris hop onto the back of Stevie's bike around 6.15 and head north on 14th Street, we landed on a time of around 6.30 when Carlos believes that he saw the boys headed towards Robin Hood. Carlos's reaction of seeing the boys around dinner time on May 5th fits well with Kim Wilson, Ben Crafton, and other sightings. In fact, Carlos recalls running into Kim and Ben that night on his way home. But the most shocking part of Carlos's interview with me was the mention of the sleeping bags rolled up on the front of the boys' bikes. He couldn't remember if there were three bikes or two bikes, but he remembers that all three boys were there, and he's sure that he remembers seeing at least one sleeping bag and he believes there was a sleeping bag on each bike. Now, that information is both interesting and perplexing. To begin with, there were no sleeping bags found on the crime scene. Although in one of the photos, we see what appears to be, at least in my opinion, a green gunny sack laying with a pile of evidence. Some people have theorized that that green bag is the sleeping bag, but it looks too big to be a sleeping bag to me. It's also not logged as evidence. My theory is that the bag probably belonged to the West Memphis PD and probably contained equipment to process the crime scene. Although, I admit, that's nothing more than a theory, and I've never seen crime scene investigators use a gunny sack to carry their equipment. But then again, in this instance, they had trash pumps out there, they had a lot of abnormal equipment to try to dig through and find evidence in the creek bottom. So, really, who knows? But as far as Carlos goes, we also have a couple of police interviews with him, and he never mentions the sleeping bags. But since we don't have a transcript of the interviews, we really don't know what questions were asked of him. So it could have just been that no one asked him if he saw sleeping bags. We really don't know. And I find myself wondering if the memory of the sleeping bags kind of slid its way into Carlos's subconscious because the boys told him that they were going camping. Nonetheless, Carlos at least appears to be giving his best recollection of what he saw that night. The part that seems to be the most credible and verifiable to me is that by 6.30 p.m., all three boys were finally together. They were headed for the Robin Hood Woods. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. In the next scene, we return to Ryan Clark. During this segment, Ryan shares his feelings on his stepfather, John Mark Byers. Ryan finally expresses publicly his frustrations with Mark's public reactions to losing Christopher. We've all seen Mark on TV fighting for justice for his beloved son. But according to Ryan, Mark, I'll quote Ryan here, hated Christopher. Ryan says that Mark actually had really nothing to do with him. He describes a scene very similar to what we heard from Don Moore during Season 5, where when Mark was angry with Chris, he would make him stand in the kitchen with his pants down and wait for him to come in with a belt to whip him. 
Ryan has told me a lot of stories on and off the record about Mark's relationship with Chris and with his mother. He's told me stories about the three years following Chris's death and even the day that his mother died. To put it mildly, Ryan is not a fan of Mark Byers at all. And he doesn't believe that Mark really cared that Chris had been killed. Ryan chalks up Mark's emotional reactions that we've all seen to pandering for the cameras. Ryan really is an interesting guy. He's never really studied the case. He has his theories, but he doesn't claim to really know what happened to his brother. He doesn't necessarily think that Damien, Jason, and Jesse had anything to do with the killings, but if you get to talking to him about them, you'll see pretty quickly that he does still harbor some animosity towards them, especially Damien. Any mention of Damien, and Ryan will almost always ask, would you let him watch your kids? Now, to be clear, the answer to that question for me now is yes. That's because I've gotten to know Damien well enough now to know that, aside from what some may consider an unorthodox belief system, Damien is a practitioner of what he calls ceremonial magic, that's magic with a K, not a C, but besides that, he's really just an ordinary guy. When I've spent time with Damien, we don't talk about the case or magic. We talk about our favorite TV shows and where to get the best pizza in Harlem or where to get dessert after that pizza, which, by the way, is insomnia cookies, and they deliver, even to your hotel room at 1 a.m. when you're up working late, or so I've heard. To me, Damien is just a regular guy. He's very intelligent, and we've had some great and interesting conversations. But Ryan's only knowledge of Damien comes from what he's seen on TV, which includes him flipping off a camera and sticking his tongue out at Ryan's brother's murder trial. So you can imagine, even if Ryan believes that the three are innocent, he's still not a fan. Probably never will be. Another interesting thing about Ryan is that because of what he calls Mark Byers' hatred for Christopher, he's often considered the fact that Mark might have had something to do with the murders. But as I said, he's never really studied the case, at least not enough to know the timelines. See, Ryan actually accounts for Mark's timeline from about 5.45 p.m. through the rest of the night. And as I said in this week's follow-up episode, most importantly, he confirms both Mark's and his mother's 1993 statement that Chris was at home and alive while Mark was picking him up from court. He remembers pretty vividly getting home and Mark being pissed because Chris wasn't cleaning under the carport as he was instructed. And he remembers his mother insisting that she had just seen him out there and telling Ryan to check upstairs because she had heard him come in and out a couple of times. After that, Mark was either with Ryan and his mother or with just Ryan or with just his mother until after it got dark that night. By then, the boys had been murdered and their bodies concealed and the killer had already fled the scene. This case is difficult to digest because there are characters involved that, let's just say, people don't care for. There are a lot of people who believe the West Memphis Three are guilty because they don't like Damien. They don't agree with his chosen religion, they insist that he's a Satan worshiper, so on and so forth. Now, I'm not going to tell someone who they should like or dislike, but we can't let that get in the way of investigating the facts and the evidence. All of the evidence says that Damien, Jason, and Jesse 
had nothing to do with this, nor did they have any knowledge of this crime. The same is true of Mark Byers. There are certainly a lot of reasons not to like Mark, but one thing is very clear. He could not have murdered those boys. His alibi is rock solid. So we move on. Part two concludes with me sitting back down with Jim Clementi. Our meeting begins with him giving us a lesson on memory. At this point in the investigation, I was realizing just how unreliable memories can be. Witness after witness shared with me their versions of events from 26 years earlier, and most of the time, their memories had clearly shifted over the years. Jim explains that memories are malleable, a phrase that's not new to any of you Truth and Justice listeners. Our brains are not computers. They're organic. And our minds have this crazy tendency to fill in gaps. And we don't even know what's happening. Whenever we try to draw on an old memory, if the piece of the story that you're looking for just isn't there, your brain will tend to fill that piece in with what it expects to be there. I think this phenomenon is why Jamie Clark Ballard is so certain of her memory even though it doesn't fit with the evidence. Maybe what she saw that day was just Stevie riding away. But when she tried to recall that memory, years later, when she knows that Stevie was killed with two other boys, now she remembers seeing all three boys together. I'm not saying that's what happened, and I'm not saying that's accurate. I'm just saying that's the type of thing that tends to happen with people's memories. And when it happens... You don't realize it. In your mind's eye, what you're remembering is what actually happened. And it's the same fill-in-the-gap memory phenomenon that could be why George Taylor knows that he was wearing green shorts that day and maybe why Carlos Seals is sure that he remembers seeing sleeping bags on the boys' bikes because he remembers them telling him that they were going to go camping in the woods. Every single 2019 statement has to be compared back to the 1993 evidence and statements to check it for credibility. George Taylor remembers a green and white plastic pipe, but that pipe didn't exist in 1993. It's a false memory. But Ryan Clark remembers coming home from court and his mother insisting that Chris had just been right outside and he had come into the house a couple times. All of the 1993 statements and court records, as well as Melissa Byer's 1994 trial testimony, confirm that memory. So now we can assume that it's accurate. This is the balancing act that I was going through for months, trying desperately to separate fact from fiction to develop a reliable timeline for the boys' movements. And I delivered that timeline to Jim at the close of part two. There was a part of the timeline that was left out of the final cut of the show. Based on two elements, I'm convinced that Stevie Branch did in fact return home at some point that night and ate dinner. One is a statement in a newspaper from a couple days before the murder from a woman named Betty Johnson. Betty told a reporter that she saw Stevie riding his bike on South 16th Street that afternoon alone. We know that when Stevie left his house around 3.40 in the afternoon, 
he left with Michael, both of them on bikes. But when Betty saw Stevie, it was just him on his bike, which means it was a different time and different incident from when they left the house hours earlier. Based on other witness statements that indicate that Michael was playing alone in the other end of the neighborhood, it's my belief that Stevie returned home sometime around 5 or 5.30. The other strong indicator that this actually happened is found in Stevie's autopsy. In the autopsies, all three boys' stomach contents were analyzed. Chris and Michael's stomachs were empty, which is what we would expect based on what we know about their afternoons. As far as we know, none of the boys ate anything after they returned home from school that day at around 3 o'clock. And even if they had grabbed a snack before they went out to play, in a healthy, active 8-year-old, it takes about 90 minutes to 2 hours for food to be fully digested and fully move out of the stomach into the intestines. So if they had a snack at 3.30 in the afternoon, by 5.30 or so, it would have been out of their stomachs. Now, I believe that the boys were killed between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. On the show, we pushed that time back to 8.30, but that's because we have witness statements at 8.30 from people who had been down to the pipe at that time, and the bikes were already in the water. So that's the far end of our window. We know the boys were deceased at least by then. But realistically, we know that the boys were last seen headed towards the woods at 6.30. I believe they encountered their killer shortly thereafter. So if I had to give you my best guess about when they were killed, I would say probably about 7 o'clock. Then there's 30 to 45 minutes for body concealment, and the killer is out of the crime scene by 7.45. That time is important because of Stevie Branch's stomach contents. Stevie's autopsy indicated that he had partially digested green vegetable material in his stomach when he died. That's a huge clue that was ignored by the original investigators. Like I said, it takes an hour and a half to two hours for food to fully digest and pass out of the stomach. The food in Stevie's stomach was only partially digested and hadn't begun to move out of the stomach yet. Now, there's a window of times here, but let's say that I'm right and the boys were killed at 7 p.m. Let's just use that as a time of death so we can work this math problem out. That means that Stevie had to have eaten those vegetables after Pam went to work at 4.45. Now again, there's a window here so the time is not exact, but since the food was only partially digested, I would estimate that Stevie returned home and ate around 5.30 or 6 p.m. It's during that time that we have multiple sightings of Michael without Stevie, and it's also during that time that Chris was being spanked and told to clean under the carport. Betty Johnson saw Stevie alone on his bike, and of course, because of the medical evidence, we know that he ate within an hour or two of his death. The episode ends with Jim Clemente saying, with all of the evidence gathered so far, it's now time that we put together a profile of our killer. So, rather than me explaining how Jim landed on the profile that he delivered in part three, he's actually going to join me for our part three breakdown. That's next week on Truth and Justice.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic Way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply.